You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good morning, everyone. I want to ask Harry that special favor to play by Willie King, the terrorized, because we're going to talk about innovations to combat vaccine fatigue. But I really feel from a psychic standpoint, folks have felt terrorized for actually several decades and generations, but particularly in terms of health issues, COVID, uh, vaccines, uh, symptoms, just uh, people's dispute, controversy on the, the the need to kind of protect fu- your, your not only your own self, but future generations, all these controversies. In some ways, I think folks have felt terrorized, uh, particularly for the last two or three, two or three years from a global health standpoint. Uh, so I guess I wanted to kind of play that song to kind of uh, to my mind, just communicate the, the the importance of this show today, innovations to combat vaccine fatigue. We're really so pleased to have Dr. Oniema Obuago with us. And uh, he's been, Dr. O has been, been with, been on with us before. Uh, also Reverend Dr. Leroy O. Perry Jr. is with us, pastor of St. Stephen's AME Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program and Reverend Elvin Clayton. Pastor Walters Memorial, Amy Zion Church, and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Uh, Dr. O, uh, I've seen him on TV. I've seen him on newscasts. He's been in print. And so it's really a privilege to have clearly an international star. And I'll, I'll say that without any hesitation uh, to share with us for the next 50 or so minutes. He's a renowned infectious disease researcher um, and has been the lead person on various, uh, various therapeutic and preventative clinical trials for COVID vaccines, also for HIV, which we're not going to focus on today, but just this whole specter of the of, the, of human biology, uh, global transmission, um, disease prevention. What, is the, what does it mean to have a healthy world, not just your healthy block, your healthy neighborhood, your healthy country, but a healthy world? Vaccines remain, and I'm, I'm very comfortable in saying this, although it is disputed by even some people who are trying to run for president, but vaccines remain one of the most effective ways to combat many infectious diseases. But that depends on individuals, us, you, me, everybody, staying up to date with vaccines and boosters. With current recommendations for flu, COVID, and, and, and RSV immunization, vaccine fatigue has begun to set in. I mentioned to Dr. O just before starting the show that I had my vaccine, my COVID shot and my flu shot this past uh, uh, Friday. And he reminded me that it still takes a week for it to kind of, kind of come, kind of be free for it to be, begin to become active, so to speak. Um, I know. Uh, and so separate from previous shots that people might receive, this is a fundamental concern and issue and mandate, quite frankly, in my mind, for people to kind of take real ownership of their health. Do- Dr. O, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. As associate professor of medicine and and affiliated with the Yale Institute of Global Health, it's always such a a, a pleasure to kind of to see to see you and this and not to say Reverend Clayton and Reverend Perry. It's not good to see you guys, but but I, I don't see Doctor O as often as I should. Uh, there's a ton of questions that come to my mind. I mean, uh, a ton, a plethora. But let's just jump jump right in. Uh, there is a growing concern. I think you, you you agree that vaccine fatigue has become a major obstacle. I guess people tired of uh, a major obstacle in maintaining immunity uh, in the general population. Can you uh, explain a little bit to our listeners the, this current the concept of vaccine fatigue, and if you think it's a reality? 
So I think that's a very topical issue. And I think it's happening in at a time where everyone's sounding alarm bells about, you know, increasing number of cases, hospitalizations uh, from respiratory illnesses in general, um, including COVID-19 more recently. And so I think this is a very apt message um, for the audience. Now, remember that when we initially had vaccines, we worried about hesitancy or outright refusal, right, for people who would not been vaccinated against COVID, not wanting to get the shots. Now, this is a different phenomenon. This is people who probably have already accepted previous iterations of the vaccines and are hesitant to receive more. So it's somewhat of a kind of a different challenge where you're really not starting out with people who don't believe in vaccines or who refuse vaccines. But this now includes people who receive vaccines but are asking, why should I take the fifth, the sixth, the seventh shot, right? We've had three different iterations of the COVID vaccine. You know, the initial one was the monovalent vaccine. Then we had the bivalent where we mixed two strains in a vaccine. And then, of course, there's the updated one for the 2023-2024 winter season, which is a monovalent that's targeting the XBB 1.5, which is one of the Omicron subvariants that was circulating at the time. So I think it's a unique challenge. And we're seeing that, frankly, in vaccine uptake uh, for, you know, the COVID vaccine, for example, that... Um, you know, even for the latest um, uh, iteration that less than 20% of adults in the U.S. have have taken that. And that's mm -hmm. a huge drop from prior uptake rates. And, you know, one other concept I just want to mention is that we're seeing differential uptake as well. So more people are electing to get the flu vaccine. So for those same adults, twice as many have opted to receive the flu vaccine, but half of those received the mm -hmm. COVID vaccine. So I think that also clearly shows that some people are just, again, very concerned about having to receive multiple doses of the vaccine because while they refrain from taking the new COVID shot, they still went to get their seasonal influenza vaccine. Mm -hmm. Reverend Perrin, Reverend Clayton, I want to uh, pull you guys in almost right now because there's so many things that come to my mind. And and to me, there's just one fundamental question, what, how do we attack this? But uh, Reverend Perrin, what, what's uh, circulating in your, your, your synapses this morning as we kind of begin this discussion? Uh, but Tom, I, I think that Dr. O is is uh, sounding the trumpet for what seems to be uh, a clarion call for all who fail to heed the need for taking the vaccines. And, um, you know, I was listening today and they were saying that COVID is on the rise. Mm -hmm. One of the ways they were telling us that they said they can look at the wastewater. They can look at the new entries into the hospital. And I think people have gotten to the point where they think that this is uh, this will just go away <laughs> as mysteriously as it approached us. But it's still here. Mm. And we we have to be vigilant and particularly people who have comorbidities, seniors and, and people who think that they're invincible. They need to know that it is dangerous not to take the vaccine. And I think Dr. O is here to talk to us about how we can how we can work this in such a way as not only can we take one, but take two, and at the price of one. <laughs> so uh, you know, I I just yesterday I went and got my because of Doctor O my RSV shot, and um, he was telling me about the efficacy of the shot. I wasn't gonna take it. I, I figured I was doing fine, but when I talked to the pharmacy, she said, you know, it's a good thing you came in. Because I think this will help you. <laughs> this, she said, people just don't understand that these vaccines are not here just to make money for people. 
these vaccines are here to save lives and to help people. And it's, and, and you can tell by the news today, RSV is spreading across the South and, mm. and, and in our neighborhood. So we, we need to pay attention to the telltale signs of uh, what good health looks like now and going forward in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Reverend Clayton? Yes. Last Sunday, I was watching a football game. And uh, the running back only needed about three yards. And he got about one yard. And the rest of the team just held him up and pushed. They just kept pushing this guy. <laughs> they kept pushing him until he went right into the end zone. And I said, that's what we got to do with this work. Hmm. We almost have to lift people and keep pushing, keep flooding uh, the mm -hmm. airways keep flooding the newspapers and magazines the importance uh, of getting these vaccines because it has not gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. O, reference, and I love, I love that metaphor, Reverend, Reverend Clayton. Dr. O, talk about some people might feel that they've, uh, they've had the various shots and they kind of had, and now they get to have mild symptoms. Why well, it still isn't an imperative for them not to just tolerate being having an average healthy life, but going for the maximum. Yeah, so that's a good point, right? And I think um, it's probably even more, you know, I know we think of the most vulnerable, like Reverend Perry said, you know, the elderly uh, immune compromised folk, which is true because, you know, those groups tend to have way more of the, you know, severe disease, hospitalizations and death from COVID-19. But we've seen for even for kids and so-called young healthy people, first of mm -hmm. all, that many young healthy people don't realize they're at risk for severe COVID because they have undiagnosed medical conditions. We know mm. even in the black community, there's a certain you know, percentage of people who have undiagnosed diabetes, undiagnosed hypertension, undiagnosed kidney disease. So people, some people carry that without even knowing mm. and that furs on them a risk of um, having a severe COVID-19 uh, disease. But then also other things like, you know, we do know that even those who have mild disease have some background rate of developing long COVID. Mm. So, you know, saying I, I, I won't get my shots, you know, if I get it, I'll have mild disease. But we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of understanding of the burden of long COVID, how it occurs. It manifests in so many different ways for some minority of individuals is quite debilitating. Like people are having a hard time returning back to work. People are having, you know, uh, fatigue. People are having uh, difficulties even being able to get back to their pre-disease state level of functioning, which are quite significant even for, like I said, for those with mild disease. And I think, uh, I love Reverend Clayton's analogy. I think that, mm -hmm. you know, we need a little bit of a community approach here where we recognize that even if you're young and healthy and you get sick, you can transmit the virus to grandpa, to you know someone in your home, at your workplace who's vulnerable. So you can actually be a portal or a vector of, of transmission of the infection to some other vulnerable individuals. So I think if we, if we look at it from the sense that you know we all have something to contribute to community health by doing our part to, to take the vaccine, and, you know, then it sends a message that's just stronger than, you know, take a vaccine to protect yourself, which is true, but it gives it, you know, way more uh, importance, right? Mm -hmm. and, and gives us that community spirit, which I think is important to uh, to get out at this time. 
Absolutely. We're, we're going to jump to the study that you're involved with. Uh, Dr. O and Reverend Perry's already alluded to it, kind of teased us. But before I do, I guess we're going to also jump back be, be, be between flu and COVID, and then your study kind of looks at combining the, the, the overall gestalt. But why, just uh, to drive home that point before we go to your study, uh, what about the flu? Can you explain why it's important to, to take it uh, every year? Because I think people are still just mystified as to science says that the, 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 the vaccine needs to be modified every year, but does that mean that the, that the, the flu virus is, is I, don't, I don't want to say intelligent, but what, how, how do you explain that to a, the lay person about why the, the, flu, the flu virus changes every year and how we need to combat it? I, I think you hit the, the, the nail on the head, Tom. And I think that, yes, so you're right. Viruses are intelligent. And that's the reason why, you know, they're quite problematic to deal with. And that's the fact that viruses evolve, which means they change. Um, and when they change, it has implications for the ability to cause disease in humans, the way they're able to evade uh, pre-existing immunity, such that even a vaccinated person from you know months ago or prior seasons can still get sick with it. And I think we've also seen uh, that level of evolution with COVID-19 as well, right, where the virus has you know evolved over time. So you know the strongest reason for um, having a new shot each year is just that the virus changes, and that that way. Um, you know, our, our, we, we, and we, of course, have waning immunity um, over time with any vaccine such that we remain vulnerable uh, to the virus. And that's really important. You know, it's it's been remarkable with COVID-19 how each variant that emerges had learned to evade the immunity of the pre-existing one and just spread. We're seeing that with the new so-called GN1 uh, variant. But, but it's all about, you know, selection of, you know, viruses, right? So if people have some kind of immunity, it makes sense that the virus will, you know, to, in order to thrive, it has to find a way to evade their pre-existing immunity. So that, therein lies the challenge uh, for, for, for vaccines, which means that we have to keep chasing a changing virus with updated vaccines to kind of restore uh, a protection against it. Hmm. And just before, we, just before we go to the to the study, Reverend Perry, not that I, not that I have ESP, but I could tell, I, I sense What's 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 cook what's cooking down here? <laughs> oh, I got a lot on my mind. Um, I know, it, I know it. But the, but the, you know, the part that, that that we can publicly share, not the you know <laughs> the, the light side, not not the dark side. <laughs> well, you know, I was I was thinking two things. Um, one that um, I'm wondering how long the government will support um, the COVID vaccines. Um, because it just seems like it's it's that support is waning, and I think that you know, as if 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 Clayton is right, maybe we we need to do is get to our legislators and our policymakers and make sure that this stays in place. Because the people who are at the bottom are the people who are going to be most affected, mm. and uh, so we need to work toward that definitely. Mm. Um, and the second thing that I want to talk about, and I hope we can get to it by the end of the show, is, you know, I, I think it's important for our audience to know Dr. O. Dr. Oniema, he's an infectious disease doctor, and, you know, he has a passion for ministry mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and medicine. Mm -hmm. that, that's an odd combination, ministry and medicine. And he somehow unassumingly puts it together so smoothly yes. that you wouldn't even know. But yes. it's like he's, he's got the hands for healing, 
but he also has a heart for healing that comes mm. from God. And I think that makes him unique and special. And I, and before we finish this conversation today, I want him to talk about the work because we mentioned it uh, in a sidebar earlier of, the, of his work in African countries. Because mm -hmm. it seems to me when you're in a privileged country and we have the avail availability to take these and get these drugs and don't, it is just damn near shameful. And then you have people who can't get the drugs and who need the drugs. And, and, and if they had them, they would take them, but we're not funding them. It's just, it's just some, it's, it's morally wrong. And yet he struggles with balancing that in his heart and in his mind in ministry. And, and so by the end of the show, I'm hopeful that we'll give him an opportunity to address that because I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear the sermon for the week. Well, <laughs> let's, we, we could, we can go, we can go with the flow. We definitely have, Dr. O, if I can uh, impose upon you to respond to, to Reverend Perry in that regard in terms of the, the global issues, then I promise we'll come back for the next 20, 20 to 25 minutes and focus on the study, which is so important. But the global health issue definitely is, is key, and hopefully you, you're comfortable in talking about that. And even if you if you want to throw in the fact that as we speak in the Middle East, people are going to catch something with bombs are dropping, murders, sanitation, blah 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 blah. So this is just this this is just this is not an academic discussion. This is a global political crisis wherever you look that that that's affecting us. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I don't know. There's so many angles uh, to this, and thanks for bringing that up. But but you're right. I think that um, you know COVID nineteen has really been a lesson in how you know politics, economics. Uh, robustness or lack thereof of health systems, you know, cultural norms and beliefs, like almost every aspect of life, you know, came together to either drive human behavior, acceptance of science and, and what's out there, um, impacted um, even just, you know, the availability of treatments and vaccines and, and all that. I mean, it's just a very complex interplay um, in every environment. And I think, um, you know, certain things I just want to highlight. One is that, you know, sometimes the parts of the world that are most affected by disease get the least attention. Remember, there was a time where, um, you know, countries in the West had, what, 70, 80 percent, if not higher, of the entire vaccines that mm -hmm. were available, including pre-orders, so that in even if nothing was done for many months to come, there were other, let's say, less resource countries that were never going to see a vaccine uh, available. Um, there's still inequities around even probably the most effective vaccines being available in, in some of the uh, low resource countries where, you know, you have a significant, you know, burden of disease, et cetera, and no hope for the next, you know, decade or so mm. to have any capacity ramped up in those areas to begin to even develop capacity to produce their own vaccines, distribute those vaccines and have the system to support um, you know, the logistics of, of making that happen. And, you know, COVID taught us that, you know, trouble in any part of the world is going to lead to trouble everywhere. You know, a mm. good example is monkeypox, right? We saw that monkeypox has always been endemic in, in West Africa, but got global attention because, you know, a strain escaped out of there, you know, and ravaged, you know, many parts of the world, Europe and the U.S., and we all had to deal with that. So it's it's a reminder that our fates are kind of tied as we continue to globalize more and more, and that uh, recognizing that we need to continue to make investments in parts of the world that are struggling, 
um, because that's where many of these diseases can emerge and then end up being a global problem. You know, Remperi was alluding to important things like we're even fighting in the HIV world where, you know, a very important program that's been over two decades, you know, the, the PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Proclamation for AIDS Relief, which has really been a pivotal program that supported like, you know, HIV work in Africa, there are issues about it being reauthorized. Mm. So global funding for, you know, HIV work is threatened. And, you know, I've said this before that, you know, many countries depend on some of these resources, not just for HIV, but to even build their health systems, which then has secondary and tertiary benefits for all the other, you know, other infectious diseases, because you use those monies to build health systems, which can mm -hmm. then serve the health of population in many ways. And that's being threatened because of ideologic and political differences here in the US. So it's hard sometimes to be really optimistic that um, we have, we take a pause to really think globally around the consequences of, of uh, disease. And last thing I just want to say is, you know, you talked about war. I mean, you know, so those of us who've emerged from places where there's political instability, where there's civil strife and all that, that fuels the destruction of, of health systems to a degree like you can only imagine. I am currently doing some work in Liberia. Liberia is one of the poorest countries um, in the world and they had almost two decades of a civil war and you still see bullet holes even in their, you know, hospital walls mm -hmm. and, you know, just really torn down their health systems and Liberia had to face Ebola and then COVID-19 and who knows what else is, is brewing and faring very poorly uh, because of that interplay between political instability, civil strife, et cetera, like we're seeing in Gaza, for example. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so all these things do matter. Many of them are way above our, our pay grade. But I think that at a minimum, we can highlight these issues. We can advocate uh, for for those who you know hold the purse strings to to really think about the vulnerable uh, you know the most impacted and before we think this is just uh, uh, you know a low resource country kind of problem there's a lot of poverty in the U.S. right there's marginalized groups we're seeing even the disparities with COVID-19 and vaccine uptake among you know people of color you know, disadvantaged populations. And so we have our own domestic challenges. You mm -hmm. talked about um, the government no longer covering vaccines. We know the emergency proclamation, I think, ended in May 2023. And so now people's insurances um, have to cover the vaccines, right? And now we start to see that gap between the insured and mm -hmm. the uninsured with regards mm -hmm. to, to vaccine uptake. And that's now emerging as a driver of some of the disparities um, with vaccine uptake. So these are even local issues that we can start to also address from a systemic standpoint to address the needs of the vulnerable and the underserved. Excellent. I'm glad you lifted Liberia up and obviously the Middle East and even, even the Congo. So people might want to guess to do their little research about the wars that are going on throughout the everywhere. Let, no, let's jump. No, go ahead. No, go ahead, Aaron, I, Perry. Can I ask the old question? In, in countries like uh, undeveloped countries like Africa and South Africa in particular, maybe, is the fight being won against AIDS or HIV? Or is it just maintenance at this There's point? a delicate uh, progress. Huge strides have occurred. I think one of the greatest uh, indices are that we've gotten more people than ever on HIV therapy than ever before. I think globally that number is getting to like 70% or higher, which is incredible you know, for people with HIV across the world. And of course, you know, some of those successes, again, have been uh, due to some of the funding 
that we worry that's being threatened. That's why I call it delicate progress. So yes, there's been huge progress. There's a reduction in the number of new cases of HIV globally. We've learned to use HIV medications, not just to treat HIV, but also to prevent HIV. That's helped as well. Um, Africa has learned so much uh, about how to strengthen their health systems to meet global targets um, to end the HIV epidemic. But like everything else, um, you know, progress has been slow, but incremental, but is now threatened by um, uh, unavailability of, of resources. Excellent question. Dr. Oskar, let, let's spend 10, 15 minutes on the, because I guess love the fact that in spite of the, the, the geopolitical challenges, people are still optimistic, hopeful, at least in terms of spending time in the vineyard working on some some solutions, some resolutions, some so some prospects, and you're still you're a believer in the body mind spirit connection, but it's just not you're preaching about it, but you're in the lab, you're in the daily 24 7, 365 laboratory of life. Let me phrase mm -hmm. phrase it that way. So let's let's talk about the uh, the study you're working on to to evaluate the safety and tolerability and and uh, of, of this combined vaccine COVID flu cocktail. <laughs> yep. yeah, we're calling it we're calling it the fluvid study okay? all right so just combining influenza with, with COVID-19 so I think you know we talked initially about vaccine fatigue right especially you know this is the first time I think I know of that you know in uh winter uh, fall winter season we're asking people 60 years and older to receive three vaccines against respiratory viruses first time ever right mm. so you're being asked to receive the flu uh, RSV, if you're greater than 60, as well as COVID-19. And I got to tell you, Tom, there's over 200 vaccines for all kinds of infectious disease in the works. Mm. And there'll be mm. a couple that will be, you know, the CMV vaccines. I think we may have some of the first uh, uh, approvals, maybe by, by 2024 already. Um, there's tons of vaccine candidates. So the future is going to be full of vaccines for individuals. And so where we have, you know, disease conditions that share similarities, for example, we know in the you know, fall, winter, that's the flu season, that's the RSV season, that's where you have a peak in cases. Maybe there's a way to combine vaccines for those illnesses that share what we call a similar epidemiology, because they happen at the same time, they impact, you know, the same groups of individuals. So rather than giving the logistics of giving, you know, one or two or three shots separately, it seems like it's a smart idea. Again, I think it also helps combat the vaccine fatigue. Why, why not we put these together and, and put them together to vaccinate individuals? So we've never really been concerned um, in, in vaccinology about combining vaccines. I think anyone who knows about childhood vaccines know that there are vaccines, for example, like Tdap, that's tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis are in one shot. Mm. The measles, mom, rubella are in one shot. Hepatitis A and B are in one shot, right? So the concept of having a shot that contains antigen for different infections is not new. I think what we just want to do here is really show that nothing is lost, that, you know, when you combine them together, that it remains safe, um, both from the local reactions people get at the side of the shot and just that overall systemic feeling, um, but also to, to make sure that they're generating the immune responses and we're not mortgaging that. So, you know, we'll combine the vaccine, give them together, and then compare it to getting the vaccine separately. And mm. I think that, uh, you know, the goal is to provide enough information to the regulators like the FDA so that we hope that, you know, I don't know if we can make it by the 2024-25 season, but my hope is that we can uh, do that together. 
I do know there's also talk about even combining all three, you know, RSV, COVID, uh, and influenza uh, together as well. And it kind of makes sense, even from a logistic standpoint, so that we don't have to we'll do th- uh, three times less work, right? If mm, we mm. are able to put these vaccines together uh, for mm. individuals. And so, so Dr. Ahu would be a, a good candidate for the study. And uh, uh, if someone is interested, how can they get involved and involved and participate? Yeah, so uh, very, you know, we're we're looking for any uh, adult um, who's eighteen years and above to participate in, in the study. Uh, there's no upper age limit, at least for the initial cohort. Um, and then, you know, the only thing is, we need individuals who have not received a flu and and COVID vaccine this respiratory season. So if you received a cough or and or flu vaccine. Um, you know, August, September onwards, you probably would not qualify the study because we want people who haven't received the vaccine. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, those are the the key uh, things we're, we're, we're certainly uh, looking for. It's going to be a six-month study. So we'll uh, vaccinate individuals, bring them back uh, one week later to make sure that the vaccine was tolerated, then bring them back one month and six months later to measure anybody levels to see how they do and then compare to to those who got the vaccines individually. As always, I like to say that we always have certain groups underrepresented in clinical trials, which include, you know, tech, usually people of color, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, Blacks and also Hispanic individuals. So I always try to get word out to the communities that we want uh, participation from all these groups for the study. And, and so how do they contact you or participate oh. or find out more information? Yes, so you can always reach us at our our clinical trials phone number. It's 203-907-6044. We also have a a website in general for clinical trials, which is helpusdiscover at yale.edu. You can send us an email. Um, And, um, you know, you can always Google where the Yale Antivirals and Vaccines Research Center. um, And, you know, all all our information is on there about the best way to reach us. So, yes, we're very happy to take um, uh, uh, volunteers uh, for the clinical trial. Thanks. And is there is there any um, uh, monetary, uh, if not reimbursement, any incentive in that regard? There's always an incentive uh, <laughs> for all our vaccine trials, typically in order of between $100 and $120 for, for people's time. And, you know, but again, we always hope that people want to do studies because, you know, they want to contribute to science, they want to advance knowledge. They recognize that participating studies, you know, certainly benefits um, everyone and uh, certainly maybe even the potential for personal benefit, but we are always a little cautious with that, given that this is still an experimental combination. Mm. Mm. Excellent. Let's open open it up, please, Reverend Clayton, jump in. During the study, Dr. O, is there any concern about the amount of medication that the person will be receiving? Uh, Or will it be the same amount of COVID medicine and flu methods you get separately, or is it any difference when you're doing this combination? Yeah, so because it's a fluvid vaccine, so the flu in general, we tend to use what we call quadrivalent vaccines, which means that they include uh, antigens from four different types of influenza, typically two influenza A strains and two influenza B strains. Um, influenza A tends to be the vast majority of circulating influenza every season. B tends to be less. Um, uh, and and uh, so the study will be looking at uh, mRNA vaccines with, you know, 
one that contains 2A and 2B strains of quadrivalent, we'll also be looking at a construct that is 2A strains and 1B strain and adjusting the amount of dose that we give. Now, remember, the first time we used mRNA vaccines was for COVID-19, right, mm. for three trials. So we've kind of learned about how much dose takes us, uh, you know, gives us the right immunity. And some of the studies around uh, the new uh, flu vaccine have already been done to help calibrate the right amount of uh, dose of the vaccine that should be given. Because you you weigh two things. One is how well do people tolerate it? And are you achieving the immunity that you want from giving the vaccines? And so we've pretty much come to that sweet spot. And those are the, use, the doses that we will be using uh, for this larger study. But we will be looking at one that has four strains versus you know, three strains of the vaccine in combination with just a regular booster dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Excellent, excellent. Reverend Perry? I want to go back to the uh, compensation again. The compensation is 120, and they have to come in four, three times? Yeah, so the compensation is for each visit, um, Reverend Perry. Oh. And, um, yes, so it's not uh, for the total time. We're still negotiating the final amount, but it's going to fall somewhere between $100 and 120 and That's pretty standard uh, amount of um, stipends that we gave to you know people who did our prior flu studies as well as the COVID-19 studies. So the total would probably be more like 360? That's correct. Okay. You know, it's better when you say that up front because you confuse us with the math. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but again, um, you know, we, um, we, we in clinical research, we don't want... Um, uh, I guess, uh, uh, financial, uh, uh, you know, incentives to to be yeah. a driver for clinical trial participation. So that's why I'm exercising caution with that. Um, because, you know, of course, people do take time off of work to participate in a study. They travel from where they are to, to our location. So our goal is just to, to compensate for that. But I hope that the uh, motivation for participating in clinical trial is way above just what the reimbursements are. Yeah, see, I think I think the, the choosing of the words is also important. It's mm. not an incentive to get people to take it. It's a compensation for people who have to get there and park or get there and get home or find take time off from work and, and spend hours. Uh, so, you know, I think that's important in all of the research studies that we do. We talked to the IRB about that, and that was one of the things that they came up with. How do we measure what is a decent compensation for individuals in particular research studies. And it depends on the research study, depends on the time that the individual has to give up um, and, you know, and, and, and whatever cost getting there and getting back. So they try to work that out. So it's reasonable and it's not an incentive. It's not something to say, if you do this, we're going to give you a handful of money. No, that's not what it's about. And uh, I just wanted to clear that up for our mm -hmm. audience. Mm -hmm. So that they can, um, and 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 let me just take the next leap of faith here, and say that for the cultural ambassadors, part of our job has been to reach out to members of our community when studies like this happen, and so what we're trying to do a new thing now. We're trying to take our churches, our member churches, and when we hear research projects, we bring it to the congregation on Sunday, and then we recruit, we mm -hmm. educate, and we recruit. And so, Dr. Oh, I just want to let you know that on Sunday, I got five people. Mm. <laughs> and I, I got the number. I'm going to text it to them today. And that's just from one church. Now, just think of all of our churches uh, would do this. 
it would be phenomenal. And mm -hmm. then those who are marginalized and those who would consider the disinherited would maybe get a chance. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Reverend Clayton? Yes, sir. I, I really want to go back a little bit because something's okay. been in my brain since earlier in the show. Great. Uh, um, Dr. O talked a little bit about the long COVID. Mm -hmm. And and my thought was, um, oh, I was just wondering, uh, if there any data that shows uh, people who had the vaccine or vaccinated people versus non-vaccinated people that have this long COVID? Mm. Or, or is there any difference in the two? Mm. Yeah. And the second thought is, is there anything coming down the pike that could uh, prevent long COVID? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, in a common sense kind of way, I would say one way to prevent long COVID is not to get COVID. Right. <laughs> if you don't get COVID, you can't get long COVID. Uh, but that's a little simplistic, right? Because we know that nothing we do is 100% protective, right? You know, but yes, we have seen that um, individuals who are vaccinated, again, it's roughly about like the 20 something percent, depends on how you measure it, um, less um, risk of developing long COVID. Another intervention we're seeing that also can mitigate that is early treatment with antivirus. Mm. So, for example, you find that people who got, um, let's say, Paxlovid, um, you know, uh, once they were diagnosed with COVID, also had, again, 20-something percent reduction in long COVID. So we're not seeing one thing that addresses the entire syndrome. We're seeing things that chip a bit at the mm. proportion of individuals that have it. So, yes, there is value to vaccination. Yes, there is value to, uh, you know, early treatment, especially the outpatient therapies once you're diagnosed um, to, to mitigate um, that risk. That said, um, you know, we've started to come up with reasonable consensus definitions for long COVID, which is important, but many times these are clinical definitions. They're still a bit vague, you know, from center to center. So that's one of the difficulties. There's a lot of background noise. We're seeing that, you know, for example, people who have non-COVID illnesses also get some long symptoms as well, albeit mm. to a lesser proportion than those who got it from clue. The science is established on that. So, if, uh, you know, long symptoms are not unique to, to COVID as a virus, even in the field of, of infectious um, diseases. There's a ton of work going into like what are the genetics of those who are suffering from long COVID and how they differ from others. Um, there's a lot of work going into developing what we call biomarkers, like are there, you know, signatures of, you know, inflammatory signatures of those who get long COVID versus another. And then even trying to do what we call clustering of the syndrome. So some people tend to have more, you know, uh, um, what we call, you know, postural symptoms, like, you know, have a fast heart rate that's, an, you know, and get dizzy, you know, with uh, activities. Some people have more of a neurologic predominant thing, the so-called brain fog, memory loss, et cetera. So we're also seeing that long COVID is not one syndrome. Mm. It's like different pockets and maybe different clusters of symptom complexes that people have that will have very different uh, management outcomes. So the good news is that, you you know, the, the government has put a lot of money into this. And the NIH, for example, has what they call a recover study. Yale's a, a site for in many of those cohorts. They have like a general recover study that those are looking at neurologic outcomes and different pieces of the puzzle here. 
So there's a lot of funding going on for the next, you know, five years at least for, you know, lots of these longitudinal studies so that, you know, hopefully incrementally our understanding of what long COVID is, what's driving it, how to manage it, and how to improve outcomes uh, for those who have it, um, you know, will be a little more clear. And again, even at Yale, we have long COVID programs within the primary care program, within uh, the restoration specialists, um, you know, so we do have, you know, clinics that are dedicated and receive referrals from, you know, the mm. providers out there and, you know, sister hospitals um, to follow some of these patients to continue to expand our understanding of the syndrome. So some things work, but there's still a lot, lot, lot to learn. Mm. That's the, oh, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm wondering, I'm, like, I'm almost hearing this for the first time, so I'm trying to figure this out critically. Is it neurological? Long COVID, so it is really a function of the brain that determines what we're labeling as long COVID. And is it any way related to social determinants of health or is it just everybody <laughs> who, everyone is, I mean, it's, are there any triggers for us to look at some historical background that leads us to some conclusions with our hypothesis about long COVID? Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, we could talk about this for, you know, two hours, right? So, <laughs> so um, the drivers of long COVID, I mean, certainly we know that, you know, again, having the virus, um, you know, is obviously the prerequisite for developing long COVID. Um, it appears in some individuals, the virus can be compartmentalized in certain organs or tissues, which leads to some of the symptoms that people experience. Sometimes they're viral remnants or viral particles that persist for sometimes many weeks to months, if not years, mm. in some individuals that could still be triggering some form of uh, inflammatory response. Um, there's also the theory around autoimmunity, right? That's, you know, when the body kind of... Uh, you know, due to exposure to foreign proteins can miss, um, attack its own uh, proteins, right? That's, uh, um, uh, you know, that again, manifests as autoimmunity. Um, there's, you know, you know, but there's, and these manifest in so many different ways. They can be vasomotor instability, like we mentioned, where people have difficulty like maintaining their heart rate when they're exerting themselves. We talked about the neurologic syndromes. Um, so it's a multi or, and then of course, there's the long syndrome. Some people get, mm -hmm. you know, some like a long fibrosis and so have difficulty um, uh, with exertion, get short of breath. Some people even have progressive, you know, fibrosis of their lungs, et cetera. So it's not just a neurologic syndrome. There's pulmonary syndromes. It affects many organ neurologic syndromes. It affects many organ systems. And so I, you know, like I said, it's not one thing. I think it's a cluster of many things. And so I think, Part of the work is to tease out where people fit into one of these syndromes, identify what the drivers of those unique categories are and attack them. So the, manages, the management, I suspect, be very different based on what syndrome conflicts you're, you're presenting with. Tremendous, tremendous question, tremendous answer. Uh, gentlemen, we have about eight, eight or nine, 10 minutes. So that's eight minutes. So whatever it crosses your body, mind and spirit, uh, oh. I want to ask Dr. O about mm -hmm. the vaccine. This is a Pfizer vaccine? That and is correct. So, and is Pfizer the only one with this vaccine out now? No? No. So, the you know, the lots of companies, you know, nowadays it's, uh, um, how would I say, it's the... <laughs> uh, 
interesting landscape of you know everyone wants everybody wants you know vaccines their startups their new like biotech you know and then of course mm -hmm. pharmaceuticals that are going into vaccine research moderna has its own platform as well for for combined uh, vaccines um and you know of course there's a lot of work going on in the us and even outside the us so um, you know, for now, you know, we are working with Pfizer and their vaccines, but we also working with Moderna and the RSV vaccines as well. Um, you know, so just picking and choosing what platforms we think, you know, um, hold the greatest promise and even those that are a little more advanced than others in regards to just their vaccine and development timeline and pipeline. Mm. Dr. O, I have a question. This might sound a little bit off track and again as we kind of wind up gentlemen anything that's on your mind but in, in in tom's world if i could wave my magic wand i'd like to do a zoom call with every teacher secondary school teacher in the united states that's teaching biology and to have you speak to them because it seems to me that if i'm taking a bio if i'm in the ninth tenth or eleventh grade twelfth grade taking biology just to hear the excitement of what's going on in in this field and the way that you explain it and share it, and again, some students might be turned off by science, but it seems to me that in terms of solving this problem for the next, for the future generations, we want to have scientists such as yourself to kind of, kind of get involved. And if I'm a reasonably interested student taking biology in ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, this could be a very, this should be a very exciting time if the teacher is kind of presenting, the, by textbook, this is living living scientific revolution that we're engaged in. Am I am I off base here or, or do you share that same sentiment? You're right on it. You know, sometimes I think that um, in the past three years, you know, even the lay person has come to learn a lot about, you know, the different categories of infectious pathogens. They've learned that viruses change and evolve. You know, they've heard a lot about immunity, um, you know, which is, you know, so I think in the field of virology, human biology, immunology, I think just by the repetition and the news and the media and just the different forms that we've used to just keep talking again and again and again about COVID-19, I hope that that's translated to the community IQ, if you will, around, mm -hmm. you know, some of these issues, I think at least has grown. And I hope it does translate um, into people's um, interest in infectious disease in general, in vaccines, in the human immune system. You know, I've spent time talking with high school students who are thinking about going to college, um, you know, through working with uh, the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation. And it does come through, you know, you see young people asking very important questions, trying to understand some of the basics of the science behind a lot of this work that we're doing. Um, they express fascination with, you know, having like, it's almost like COVID-19 has been this real world, you know, mm -hmm. experience for them. Mm -hmm. We're not just talking about abstract concepts, right. but they, they've seen that one person can transmit to many. That's the reproduction number of a virus. They've seen uh, different named variants. So they know that viruses evolve and they change and the implications of that occurring. They've seen that, you know, vaccines can mitigate disease and, you know, have learned about different vaccine platforms and some of those technologies. Yeah, so I, I hope that, you know, um, you know, we use the word STEM a lot when it comes to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, mm -hmm. people, you know, going to college. It's something that, again, we still have underrepresentation you know, of people who look like me. And so I, I hope that this is a moment. That said though, you know, it's, it's, it's not all rosy. Um, even in the medical field, we're seeing, less people interested in infectious disease as a specialty, mm. even post COVID. So mm. that you know, doctors who've trained, done their basic training, who decide on what specialty, cardiology, pulmonology, et cetera, et cetera, 
you know, um, almost half of the, the slots for infectious disease fellowships, which means specialty training were on field when mm. we did the cycle this year. So part of the responsibility of me and many other people is I think we need to excite another generation about infectious disease because mm -hmm. you know infectious disease will be with us, has always been with us, and will only be interesting, exciting moving forward. And infectious disease pose a threat to global health and our mm -hmm. well collectively as a human community. And uh, not just the diseases itself, but I think there's lots of excitement around the prevention of those diseases that will be relevant for many, many decades to come. So here's a call to everyone. You know, again, we need, uh, uh, you know, more people in the field and, you know, everyone is welcome to participate and contribute to the fight against infectious diseases. Absolutely. You know, I think, I think that if, uh, if Eddie Murphy would try uh, to write a book, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and him and Grace could do, uh, you see, I think reaching out to the Yale School for um, our interns is great. But those, those young people are really brilliant, even when they come to us. How do we reach those who are, um, who are late bloomers, those who are in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, all the mm -hmm. way up, mm -hmm. college? How can we... How can we do that? And I and I think that Grace has the temperament and the brilliance, along with her husband, Dr. O, who looks like Eddie Murphy, to write a number of children's <laughs> books and get us all interested again, mm -hmm. basically from the bottom up, instead of mm -hmm. trying to work it from the top down, wait until mm -hmm. the family is in college or in med school. Let's start real early and, and bring this to the forefront, because I think it's the information is, that's why the, the anti-vaxxers have a, a, a hold on us, is because they got parents with them every day who don't have the knowledge of this infectious disease studies. And, um, and so they don't know. <laughs> they don't have anything to balance the truth. And I, I think this could be one of the ways, it, and I support you, doctor, uh, <laughs> any way I can, because I, I think you guys could really make a, and, and I got some people who are, who are working in this thing Dr. Um, Frencher out in California, along with Dr. Stewart at the University of Southern California, they're both looking at this now as a way of how do we reach young people who failed the STEM, who, who they hmm. say, you know, you just don't make it so you can't be a doctor. And these are the people who would work at Martin Luther King Hospital. And these are the people who would work at communities, hospitals, and wellness centers. How do we, how do we help them? And I think that we can start early with them and giving them the information um, there may be more people maybe applying for that field in immunology uh, and the studies that uh, seem to be lacking, particularly in people of color. Gentlemen, we have six, 60 seconds. So Dr. O, I'm going to give, give, you the last, give you the last word to answer that very simple question. And even just, I guess, when I'm throwing about the March of Dimes, we forget for polio, you had the young people involved that the March of Dimes. So, but Dr. O, uh, now it's 45 seconds that you have. Okay. Yeah. So um, I don't know. The future is going to be a lot about vaccines and vaccines protect our health. Uh, one of the reasons we all live as long as we have um, and the reason why we live as well as, as we have, you know, you think about polio and measles and how even for those who survived that, right, how there could be consequences, right, uh, regards to just overall health. And so I I think we need to keep this message alive that vaccines are a critical part of maintaining our health. Um, we need to, to take them um, when they're available. And I think that even more aspirationally, we can be involved 
in the process of developing these vaccines. Um, Reverend Perry talked about reaching out very early. I think that makes a lot of sense to build enthusiasm and interest in what will remain a topical area. Infectious disease will always be relevant and it's it's time for all of us to put our our, our fingers to the fire and, and work together to to solve this solve the issues now and those that will come in the future. Mighty gents, thank you so much. Happy holidays, everyone. And Dr. O, as, as always, good, good to see you and and work on that film uh, with your with your wife Grace and, and the book <laughs> and the, the multimedia package. <laughs> Reverend Clayton, Reverend Perry, Dr. O, it's been a pleasure to kind of commute, content commune with you guys. Be well. All right. Thank you. I've been terrorized.